0: I welcome you again tonight, and um, so next week, next Sunday evening I should say, we're going to begin our series on prayer, and I, I, I kind of pushed it back a week because I kind of wanted to give a little bit of time for people if they wanted to buy a book to um, to sign up and give us some time to get the books in and that kind of thing, so I kind of pushed it back a week and uh did something else for 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 this week uh, tonight, and what I'm going to talk about tonight is going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be um, an exposition from Scripture per se, but it's going to be uh, basically an apologetic sermon. And what that means is, a, a, apologetics is basically the discipline of the defense of the faith. It's not an apology for being a Christian. Rather, the word apologetics comes from the Greek word uh, apologia, which means to give an answer or reason or defense. When Peter writes and he says, always be prepared to give a reason or an answer or defense for the hope that is within you, that's the Greek word apologia. And so um, I just thought this would be uh, interesting to you, and maybe more than that, would be helpful to you, encouraging to you that um, uh, there was a certain period within church history uh, in the maybe the, the past um, late eighteen hundreds and up to the through the late nineteen hundreds, where um, in, especially in uh, universities and things like that. Uh, people look kind of down on Christianity. Basically, they thought, well, if you're a Christian, you have to kind of check your brain at the door. Um, But uh, we now, I mean, there's just so much strong evidence out there, and and there's so much easier access to it now than there ever has been. You can have confidence in what you believe. Trust me. So we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. But let me pray, uh, and then we'll we'll get get right in. So, Lord, um, we know that The ultimate reason we believe in you is because Jesus Christ meets us just like he met Paul on the road to Damascus. We see you, Lord, with eyes of faith. We behold you like we've never beheld you before. Um, We know that we cannot convince people, Lord, with just sheer intellectual arguments concerning Christianity. But nevertheless, if something is true, it's true. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us, teach us truth, that you would help us to hold firmly the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And I pray that you would give us a confidence, not an arrogance, Lord, but a confidence, Lord, that. Not only does Christianity satisfy the deepest longings of our heart, but it is also objectively, historically true. And that is the only thing, in fact, that gives it its power. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And that's our hope. So minister minister to us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to talk about Did Jesus really rise from the dead? I kind of intended to do this closer to Easter, but it didn't work out, so you get it now. So there you go. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? So as I've said many times before, Christianity is rooted in historical reality, and that makes it rather unique of the other religions, even the monotheistic religions like Islam and Judaism, which just believe in one God like we do. Um, Well... We're we're actually very similar to Judaism, of course, because we share the same history up till Christ. But they obviously reject Christ. But Islam, for example, is just based on Muhammad, who claimed to have vision of angels, and that's where he received the Quran, etc. But Christianity is rooted in historical reality, not vague spiritual ideas. Christianity is not first about being a better person or, or keeping a bunch of rules. Christianity is first about a man named Jesus Christ who really lived... Really died, really rose from the dead who's really coming back and that really changes everything the resurrection um, of course is is jesus 's greatest miracle because it fully and finally confirms his identity uh, he and it, it, it and it confirms that he did what he said he would do and that he accomplished what he said he would accomplish, namely jesus come came to destroy the works of the devil, the wages of sin the Bible says is death, Jesus in conquering sin has conquered death, and he proved that once and for all by rising from the dead, and so if this is true, of course, then it demands, demands a different way of looking at the world. Well, I've mentioned some of these before, but we're going to have them up on the screen here, but they're even, even from skeptical non-Christian scholars, basically, there are 12 essentially universally agreed-upon facts concerning the, the, the days around Jesus' death and resurrection. So even non-Christian scholars, there's pretty much universal consensus on these 12 facts based off of the historical evidence. Number one, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Number two, he was buried, most likely in a private tomb. Number three, soon afterwards, the disciples were discouraged, bereaved, and despondent, having lost hope. Number four, Jesus' tomb was found empty very soon after his interment. Number five, the disciples had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Number six, due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed. They were even willing to die for their belief. Number seven, the proclamation of the resurrection took, very, took place very early, from the beginning of church history. Number eight, the disciples' public testimony and preaching of the resurrection took place in the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus had been crucified and buried shir- shortly before. Number nine, the gospel message centered on the preaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus ten. Sunday was the primary day for gathering and worshiping. eleven. James, the brother of Jesus and a skeptic before this time was converted when he believed he also saw the risen Jesus. twelve. Just a few years later Saul of Tarsus, Paul, became a Christian believer due to an experience that he, he also believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. So I want you to think about what I've just said. These are not controversial statements even among people who aren't Christians, historically speaking, everything I just said is not, is non-controversial statement. These things, I mean, historically speaking, you can trust in these things as much as you trust that George Washington was the president of the United States. Any other, any historical belief, um, uh, you know, requires basically uh, a, a level, some level of trust in the evidence, the historical evidence that we have for those things. And uh, these statements are just not, not controversial. The question is what can explain the fact that these 12 things happened? And it turns out that despite all the the twisting and finagling of trying to get out out of the claim that Jesus rose from the dead there's really no satisfactory explanation for the fact that these 12 things occurred except that what they said happened actually happened and that is that Jesus Christ did in fact rise from the dead. So why do we accept these 12 facts well um uh, even you know again most scholars and and even um skeptical scholars now well we have to there's just some things that we just that we just have to admit for example the new testament number 1 is not a legend the new testament is not a legend there the new testament as you know is uh, a collection of documents written by early uh, eyewitness accounts or associates of eyewitnesses who claimed that they actually saw the things that they wrote about with their own two eyes. And so these documents were written within two generations uh, of the actual events and were written uh, by eyewitnesses or their contemporaries. And the storyline of the Bible was actually corroborated by a handful of Extra biblical sources—that is, non-Christian writers—around the same time actually record things that basically confirm the biblical storyline being written by the, the writers of the New Testament. In addition, um, there are more than thirty there are more than thirty historical figures mentioned in the New Testament that have been confirmed by archaeology and history. And so, it's, it's not legendary. If you've ever read a legend. Uh, you know that they just make up characters, and there's no real correlation to, to reality. And, and myths, myths were very popular at that time. That was the time of the Greek gods, the Greek and Roman gods. They actually worshipped those gods at the time of the writing of the New Testament. You could go back and read those myths. They're nothing like the New Testament. If you read the New Testament, it's, it's painfully obvious that those who were writing it, were just very, they very plainly understood that what they were doing was writing down what they, what they saw happened they were they were being historians basically so the new testament is not a legend number 2 the new testament is not a lie the new testament in- includes embarrassing details specifically about the disciples if you were making up a religion you wouldn't make up you wouldn't write its founding documents and make yourself look like a fool but that's what they do over and over again the new testament also contains difficult sayings jesus says some things that are Kind of hard to understand and kind of hard to explain. One example is Jesus says, I don't even know when I'm coming back. That's a problem. That's a problem, theologically speaking, because, you know, it's very clear early on that the church taught Jesus was God. Well, if you were were making up a religion, you would just cut that out because that doesn't fit what you're teaching. But they included it because Jesus said it. Uh, In uh, in places of the New Testament, they encourage readers to verify their statement. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, said uh, as many as 500 people at one time saw Jesus Christ alive. Why would would Paul say that? Because he's telling the Corinthians, go ask them. Go find the people and ask them. In other words, he's inviting them to verify his statements. He's not saying, just take my word for it. He's saying, go verify my statements. And finally, I think most compellingly, the eyewitnesses, the writers of the New Testament, endured persecution and martyrdom for their empirical claim that Jesus Christ physically bodily rose from the dead. Again, this is important. It is not like a, a, a modern-day Muslim for a radical, for example, who goes and blows up himself for Allah. Because he is taking his faith on Allah based off the testimony of Muhammad. But we're talking about something different. We're talking about if there were, if, if there were people who made up Christianity, it would be these people. And yet they are the same ones who are willing. In other words, you would have to say that they willingly endured great persecution and martyrdom for something they knew was a lie. And that just doesn't make sense. So the New Testament is not a lie. It's not a legend. Finally, it's not an embellishment. You know, it would be kind of tempting to say, "Well, you know, they were just very fond of this Jesus guy, so they kind of just embellished his story to make make him look a little bit better than he actually was." The thing is, is that if you read the Bible, especially the uh, the various accounts, you can tell that um, there's just not a whole lot of embellishment there. Now, there's over, for example, um, there are well over a hundred, I'm sure uh, hundreds of historically, by now, and archaeologically confirmed details uh, in the New Testament. And you could just take the book of Acts, for example. Uh, The book of Acts, Luke writes with uh, remarkable precision. Even, you know, again, even anyone who's a historian, even if they're not a Christian, recognizes that, historically speaking, Luke In writing uh, the book of Luke and Acts, is profoundly careful, and they 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 found where like Luke says, Luke says this and this. We went from here to here. That was a day's journey. We went from here to here. That was two days' journey. It's all been confirmed. He has named specific people who were who had specific roles of authority in the Roman government, and they have found you know seals or inscriptions that verify that that was the name of that person, and he. And Luke even gave them the correct title because the different people in various regions had different titles associated with that role. And Luke would name them in this town, he was the proconsul. In this town, he was the governor. In this town, he was this. Luke is actually remarkably precise in his recording. And in the the same document where Luke is incredibly careful to include accurate details, he also says, and then we went to this town and -and so-and-so was healed. And so and so was raised from the dead, and but he doesn't make a big deal out of it. He just he just keeps writing. And then we did this, and so and so was healed, and then we did this. He's not he's not embellishing. He's just saying what happened. It's very it's it's pretty clear if you read it. It's it's not extravagant. He it, it's very clear that he's just he understands that he's recording what he's seeing, what he's what he has researched and understand, and so. We can believe beyond a reasonable doubt that the New Testament authors accurately recorded what they saw. And so really then there is only one course left for the skeptic concerning the validity of the resurrection of Christ. And that is, again, based off of everything I've just explained, it's really, it's really, really difficult Uh, borderline impossible to say that they were lying or they were uh, deceiving. And so really, the only way, and and again, historically speaking, those 12 facts concerning Jesus' resurrection are very hard to discount. And so really, if you're still skeptical, the only option you have left is to basically say this, that the disciples really did believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but they were mistaken. That's about the only option you have left. And that's what a lot of scholars will say today, and so basically there were there so basically a lot of theories have come about concerning how the disciples well, they really believe Jesus rose from the dead, but that's just because they were mistaken, and so people have come up with these theories. I want to explain some of them to you and explain why they don't really hold water. The first theory is this it's called the hallucination theory that is that people's that basically people say, well, the disciples were just, they hallucinated. They were under a lot of stress. They were really afraid. And so the disciples just hallucinated upon seeing Jesus. Well, this is probably the weakest of them all because uh, there's, there's a, there's a doc, it's, it's not a documentary actually, it's a movie, but it's based off of the life of Lee Strobel, who's going to be at the men's conference that we're going to, the men, if you haven't signed up for that, you can. And... um. But he, was a, he worked for the Chicago Tribune and he was a journalist and he took his journalism skills to investigate historically because he was a crime journalist. And what they, what, what, think about what, when you're trying to investigate a crime, what are you doing? You're trying to investigate what happened in the past, right? Well, so he was perfectly equipped to investigate, did Jesus rise from the dead? So he did this research and he was an atheist and, then he, and he was converted because he concluded that the evidence was so strong that Jesus rose from the dead. Um but in the movie he talks to a clinical psychologist at a university who basic who who herself is not a Christian, but she says mass hallucinations are impossible. Because if we all hallucinate, we're not all gonna have the same hallucination. I'm gonna hallucinate about something, you're gonna hallucinate about something else. So all the disciples could not have mass hallucinations. And besides this, of out of six of the twelve uh um sightings of appearances in the new testament on 6 of the 12 jesus specifically is said to touch or eat food in other words he's confirming he's his physical nature his reality that he's not a mere hallucination or a vision or a ghost and of course the 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 greatest reason why this uh theory doesn't hold water is because is because in the hallucination theory can't explain the empty tomb. In other words, if all they did was hallucinate, then all the Jews had to do was go open up Jesus' tomb, and there's his body. that's it Christianity's over. But it, that doesn't hold water. The second theory is, the, is this: it's the wrong tomb theory. Some people say, well, the disciples went to the wrong tomb, and that's why it's empty. Well, again, again, this doesn't work because the Jews and the Romans who had every reason not to want Jesus alive would have went to the right tomb and showed everybody his body. And again, the end of Christianity. And it also doesn't explain the, uh, the appearances of the, if they went to the wrong tomb, it doesn't offer any explanation of the appearances that the disciples saw. And it doesn't make sense. I mean, everybody forgot. Everybody went to the wrong place. And, um, And it doesn't and it doesn't explain what turned the disciples from cowards to bold proclaimers of the resurrection. Because the the New Testament actually makes clear John and Peter ran to the tomb and they saw it empty, but they were not changed by seeing the empty tomb. They were changed when they saw Jesus alive. They were still in fact the Bible says they were still skeptical when they saw the empty tomb. They didn't know what happened. And so it doesn't explain the change in the disciples' life. It was the appearances of Jesus that gave them boldness. Uh, The the third theory is called the swoon theory. Swoon theory. And that is, basically, this theory says, well, Jesus didn't die. In other words, he he went on the cross, but he didn't die from the cross. He just appeared dead. So there's there's lots of problems with this one. One is that The Romans were really good at crucifying people. They were really good. They crucified a lot of people. Jesus was not the only person to be crucified. They crucified a ton of people. They were professional executioners. Second, uh, in the New Testament, it actually says that Pilate checked and had someone check to make sure that Jesus was dead. Thirdly, think about what happened to Jesus. He was scourged. If you've seen... If you've seen the passion of Christ, I mean, it, he was almost dead before they even crucified him. Because the, the, but the scourging that he experienced, he had probably had profound blood loss. That's why he was too weak to carry his own cross beam. And that's why they had to get uh, Simon of Cyrene to carry the, the cross for him. Uh, Jesus also had the spear thrust into his side where blood and water... Uh, where it says we're released, and that's an actual—I mean, that's an actual condition which the, which medical professionals say that. Uh, it's, I don't know the name of it exactly right now, but it's the condition where basically it confirms that he was dead. And and again, that just um, there was actually um, an article in the uh, American Journal of Medical something that um, that. Where they analyze the evidence of the crucifixion and typical Roman crucifixions, and basically these medical doctors say that it's, it would be impossible to survive this. That is that there's no, it, it, no there's no way that that Jesus could have survived it. And even and and so let's suppose for a moment that somehow Jesus actually did survive these injuries. So this is what we would have to say to hold this theory. You would have to say that the people who wrapped him up in bandages, somehow didn't notice that he was alive. And then he would then have to survive 36 hours in a cold tomb with no medical care after the injuries he sustained. And then he would have to move a two-ton rock, get past armed Roman guards, and then in the same state with no medical help, he appears to his disciples and they believe he has victoriously risen from the dead. It It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. The swoon theory, <clears throat> and so, uh, so that's the third theory. The fourth theory is this: is that the disciples stole the body. The fourth theory is that the disciples stole the body. So, there's there's some there's lots of problems with this as well. How could the disciples have gotten gotten past the trained guards? Um, but of course, the most important uh, evidence against this is that is the fact that all of them just about went to martyrs' death, proclaiming their, uh, the claim that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. And so it just doesn't make sense that they would, they, they had nothing to gain. Think about it, they, they had nothing to gain. They were all devout Jews, okay? They, Judaism was, uh, I mean, it was part of who they were. Okay, and so Christianity is fundamentally changing that. It's fundamentally changing the way they relate to other Jews. They they had nothing to gain. Their, Their Lord and their master has died. They have nothing to gain from lying about it. Nothing. And yet, all of them, just about all of them, died martyrs' deaths saying that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. You have to explain that. Number five, another theory is that a substitute took Jesus' place? This has kind of been popularized by Muslims because the Quran actually says that Jesus was not crucified but only appeared to be crucified. And many Muslims take that to mean that, um, that basically that Jesus wasn't crucified, that it was somebody else. That somebody looked like Jesus or was crucified. So besides the fact that there is absolutely no evidence to support that claim, that the Quran was written nearly 600 years after the events of Jesus, after the life of Jesus, besides that, how could Jewish leaders, Roman officials, and Jesus' closest friends and family all be mistaken about who they were crucifying? So when you watch movies and stuff, lots of times the crosses are are kind of displayed at like really tall and everyone's kind of standing far back. But that's, there's not really a lot of evidence necessarily support that. It's very likely that Jesus was only a, a, fi- a foot or two off the ground. Think about it. That makes it easier for the, 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 the Romans, right? They don't have to lift this huge log. I mean, he's just a few feet off the ground. And, and they crucified people for the express purpose that people could come and see them and... and know what they do so they wouldn't... It was, like, it was like public hangings, right? It was a deterrent. So they made it visible. They made it obvious for people so that people could come by and see and so that they wouldn't do what this person did. And so it, it doesn't make any sense at all that they could all be mistaken concerning the man that was on the cross. And, and finally, uh, finally, the last theory... Uh, that some have put forward is that the disciples' faith led them to believe in the resurrection. Um, and basically, this is just saying that they wanted to believe it so badly that they kind of convinced themselves that it happened. But again, I mean it just doesn't make sense because they they didn't have they didn't have faith to believe in the resurrection. They they didn't believe Jesus when he said he was going to rise from the dead. They were were afraid and they were confused. They were not faith-filled people. That's the whole point. They didn't believe. So they certainly didn't have enough faith to believe in a resurrection that didn't happen. Because they barely had enough faith to believe in a resurrection that did. They were cowards. And only it was after they saw Jesus rise from the dead, that they were changed into bold proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, the, that last one, the, the theory that Jesus' disciples, their faith led them to believe in the resurrection again, that, it doesn't account for the empty tomb either. And so, and so what do we make of this? Well... Many people who reject the resurrection, they reject it not really because of the evidence or lack thereof, because I think the evidence is quite strong. Rather, they reject it because they are presuppositionally committed to a world in which miracles can't happen. In other words, they have a naturalistic worldview. They don't believe in God, and so they, they cannot be open to the possibility that miracles happen, because their worldview can't account for it. It doesn't account for it. So in other words, no matter what the evidence says, if you're presuppositionally committed to it, then miracles can't happen regardless of what the evidence says. In other words, they're cut off off to it. It doesn't matter what you say, that miracles can't happen regardless of the evidence because they're already committed to a worldview in which miracles can't happen. But that's just unfortunate because when you look at the historical evidence, it's so incredibly strong. I mean, you look at Jesus and his life. I mean, it's undeniable that this man was a miracle worker. You have all the New Testament documents, and they're recording these virtually. I mean, John says uh, John says all the books in the world couldn't contain the stuff Jesus did. If, they, did not, they didn't have special effects back then, folks. They didn't have, Jesus was not David Copperfield. They didn't have all, the the just the sheer number of miracles that Jesus is claimed, is said to have performed. Yeah, once somebody can trick somebody a few times. But nobody can trick thousands of people every day for three years straight without something substantial being, uh, something substantially different being uh, about that man. It's just, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't make sense. You know, I was talking to a, a student at Auburn University one time. We were talking, and I don't remember exactly how the conversation went. But eventually we got to the point, and I just kind of, I think, I think the question was asked, or may, maybe I asked it or a friend of mine did, you know, what, what would it take for you to believe in God? You know what, what? What would make it? What would make you believe? And um, and I think he said something. And lo, well, like, what lots of people say, well, you know, if if God just gave me a miracle, you know, if God just, you know, if just something, if something miraculously happened, right? If someone just popped in that chair, it terrified, really terrify this pastor. It'd be really scary if someone just popped in that chair, okay? And um, but would that make you believe in God? And and the guy was like, well, maybe. And he was like, "Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so." And, and then I and then I looked at him and I said, "You know what? I don't think you would." Maybe I maybe shouldn't talk to folks like that, but I, so I said, "I said, really, I don't think you would." I I think if something if I think if something miraculous happened right now, I think what you would tell yourself is, "You know, where's the camera? Where, where's the magic trick? Where's the illusion?" In other words, and he and, and he said, and he said, "Yeah, you're right." In other words, there is nothing that could convince him that God is real. It's not because of lack of evidence. It's because he doesn't want to believe. Why? Because if God is real, it means your life has to change. And people don't want to believe in that. And so in order to be consistent with the way they want to live their life, it's much easier for them to just say there is no God. Whether what, regardless of what. The, in other words, it's not a matter of evidence or not. <clears throat> Jesus told a story about the, the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man said, "Abraham, send Lazarus up to tell my brothers that I'm in torment." Abraham told Lazarus, even if a man should rise from the dead, they won't believe. They have the scriptures. Let them believe it. There's no reason, I think, so many people are so skeptical, but if you think about it, there's really no reason to be so skeptical about miracles, and especially about the miracle of the resurrection. Because, I think the evidence for the existence of God is just incredibly, profoundly strong. I don't know. I mean, for example, why does anything exist? Why does anything exist in the first place? Why isn't there just nothing? And, and everybody, and even scientists know that the universe had a beginning. It hasn't always existed. And so if something has a beginning, how does something come from nothing? Nothing. That means that the scientists, they want to call it the Big Bang. But what is the Big Bang? It is literally everything in the universe popping into thin out of thin air into, into everything. It's nothing becoming something. What is that? It's a miracle. It's literally a miracle. And yet when you baptize it in scientific terms, they, they, they don't call it that. But if God exists... Paul, when he was talking to Felix, I think it was, he said, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God should raise a man from the dead? It's, if 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 God exists and he is anything like the Bible describes him to be, a God of all power, then it's not it's really not that big of a deal for him to raise a man from the dead. It's really not. And so finally, there's, there's something else I want to address, and that is this. Some people say something like this, and it's it's, the kind, of like, it's kind of like a way to, to wiggle out. And they basically say, well, yeah, the evidence is fine and good, but I don't find it finally convincing. And if, when you make extraordinary claims like that, you must have extraordinary evidence. In other words, they don't straight, flat out refute you. They kind of admit you have some evidence, but they basically say, well, it's just not enough to, for such Claims like we're talking about. Well, there's just a few questions concerning that. When when someone says extraordinary evidence, well, we need extraordinary evidence for this kind of claim. My question is, what do you mean by extraordinary evidence? Do you mean like a supernatural evidence, like you want another miracle to confirm the past miracle? Well, that just goes back to what I just said before. Most people who are committed to naturalistic worldview, even if they saw a miracle, they still wouldn't believe. They would say, "I was, I was... You know, I had too much to drink or something else. You know what I'm saying? They wouldn't believe it. They still wouldn't believe it. Or if they mean by extraordinary evidence, is it repeatable? Like in a scientific lab. Well, no, of course it it, it, it can't be repeatable because it's a historical event. You can't bottle up a historical event and recreate it in the laboratory. In other, in other words, historical inquiry by definition is, is different than scientific inquiry. But nevertheless... It's, it's, we can still make reasonable conclusions from it. For example, my wife, uh, this morning for breakfast, I ate waffles and uh, sausage balls. Can I empirically prove, is there any way I can prove to you that I had waffles and sausage balls for breakfast? This just happened a few hours, folks. No, I can't prove it to you. I can't. I I think even if you cut up my stomach right now, there probably wouldn't be conclusive evidence, okay? All right? The nature of historical claims is they're just, you can't bottle them up and put them in a laboratory. But is it reasonable for you to trust me when I say that and to draw the conclusion well and to believe me when I say that? Of course it is. You have no reason not to believe me and no reason for me to lie about it. And any time we make... If something ha- in, in a in a court of law and something happens and someone says, well, I was there and I saw it, th- there is good reason to believe it. You're not a fool to believe it. You're not an idiot to believe it. You're not an intellectual, uh, you know, throwing the, everything out to believe it. You're just being reasonable because when someone says they saw it and you have reasonable evidence to believe that person, then you're reasonable to believe them. Well, the Bible was written by men who were eyewitnesses of the events in which they proclaimed, they held to what is the most beautiful beautiful ethical system in the world where they held holiness and integrity before God in high honor because God always sees you and always knows you and knows whether you're telling the truth. And they all, just about all of them went and died martyred deaths for their testimony. I would believe that man. If that... If, if, if tradition is right and the apostle Peter was crucified upside down, as tradition said he was, and if I saw Peter crucified upside down and he was hanging there and I walked up to him and said, did Jesus rise from the dead? And he looked me in the eye and said, yes, I would say, I believe you. It would be perfect, perfectly reasonable to believe him. And it's not. And so when it comes to historical claims, those things are perfectly reasonable. And then the final question is this: To be consistent, do you demand such extraordinary evidence for other beliefs? In other words, if you demand such extraordinary evidence for this belief, do you demand that same kind of evidence for other beliefs? For example, we could take uh, evolution. For example, evolution is a fascinating. Art, uh, it's, it's fascinating in terms of science because evolution is historical science. That is, you cannot observe evolution. Because the claim by definition is that it takes millions of years for it to happen. How can you observe a process that takes millions of years to occur? You you can't. So in other words, you have to make interpolations and extrapolations to come to that conclusion because it's unobservable. But the irony is, we can observe gravity, so sure. But... Many scientists treat evolution as if it's gravity when you can't observe it. It's on a totally different plane, and no one denies, and so no one denies. So this is my view. No one denies in, in speciation. In other words, so Charles Darwin he saw the finches, different food, different times, different uh, different contexts. The, uh, the 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 finches they, they had different uh, kinds of beaks developed in the different the different climates and when the weather changed and things like that. The thing, so it changed from one. It changed from one specific type of finch with certain characteristics to a different to still a finch, but with different kinds of characteristics. That yeah, to me that to me that's undeniable. But here's the here's the here's the key. It's still a finch. In other words, you could observe one finch changing into a different kind of finch, just like you. I could have you know. A chihuahua, bless his heart, can mate with a Great Dane, and you can have some crazy-looking dog, okay, that does it, but it's still a dog. It's still a dog. But, there, but you cannot observe a, a finch becoming a dog, and there's really no evidence for it. It's, it's an extrapolation. It's assumption that if they could change a little bit, they can change a lot. But how do you know that assumption is true? It's a leap of faith. It's a leap of faith to jump from microevolution or speciation to macro-evolution. It's a leap of faith. You're extrapolating from the evidence. Here's another, here's another, here's another example. Extraordinary evidence. Take, this is a historical example. Take Alexander the Great. If you read a history book, they will tell you all kinds of great facts with, with a great deal of confidence, mind you, about the man named Alexander the Great. And you could go in your school textbooks, and the historians will write about Alexander the Great, and they'll tell you he did this, he did this, and they won't qualify it. They'll just say we know he did this, he did this. Do you know that the earliest works that we have that even tell us that Alexander the Great even existed are fragments of documents that were written over a hundred years after he lived? And that the vast majority of the things written in our historical textbooks about what Alexander the Great actually did come from documents 300 to 500 years after he died. And that's in your your history textbooks about Alexander the Great. And no one questions whether he lived. No one questions whether he did what the, the things say he did. They just accept it. Compare this to the New Testament, all of which were written in less than a hundred years of the events in which they described, within the lifetimes of those people who knew Jesus. And in fact, the New Testament contains what most scholars believe to be hymns and creeds that are traceable to within years of Jesus' death and resurrection. (laughs) If you can't believe this, you can't believe in any historical event. I'm telling you. You cannot say, I don't believe in Jesus, but then say, I believe in George Washington. Because there is the evidence for Jesus Christ as a historical event and and, and for his resurrection is so strong comparatively. In other words, historically speaking, there is extraordinary evidence for Jesus. Take any other figure from the ancient world. It's not even close. It's not even close. So, in conclusion, there's no way to adequately explain the historical data apart from just taking the disciples at their word. That is... That they walked and lived with a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And he claimed that he was the fulfillment of the scriptures that all the Old Testament prophesied about. And he performed miracles that blew people's minds that they couldn't believe. They saw and they said, truly God has come among us. And he died and they didn't know what had happened. And they all their hopes were dashed because they thought he was going to be the king of Israel who was going to throw off the Roman yoke. And they were terrified and they were cowards and they were in a dark room. And then, a, and then a, a bunch of fanatic women bust in the door and say, the tomb's empty. And they say, what? And they ran to the tomb and they say, what in the world happened? And they go back and they're skeptical and then two disciples, they don't know what to do. So they take a walk and this man starts walking with them. And they go and break bread, and they saw that it was Jesus. And then later that evening, they're in, a, they're in a room with a locked door, and Jesus appears among them and says, see my hands, see my side. Do you have, some, you have something I can eat? And it changed their life, and it changed human history. Because God intervened in the world. To once and for all fully and finally reveal himself to his creatures. I want to close with this quote. I I read it, I I think it was on Easter when I read it, but I I want to read it again as we think about the life of Christ. It says, He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was thirty. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. While, when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within my mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. Jesus is alive. And that's our hope. It's our hope. And it changes everything. The way we think, the way we act, the way we speak, the way we look at the world. God, the, the Shakespeare has entered the play. And he's revealed his plan for us. And that's what we get to be part of as children.